Silence is a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, silence can be pretty awkward. In fact, more than that, silence can be pretty painful. There are moments that we as human beings do everything in our ability to drown out the silence. Ever do that? You have a night that you feel incredibly lonely and on goes the TV and hours slip by without you even knowing it because you don't want to sit in the silence. Or maybe you know the pain of reaching out to another person, seeking reconciliation, and all you get in response is silence. Maybe one of the most painful is when we even look to God and we, we look to answers for guidance, for seeking, for direction. And all we seem to hear is silence. What are we supposed to do with that? You know, the beautiful thing is that thousands of years ago, a prophet was confronted with the same question. He looked at a world that seemed to be falling apart at the seams. He looked at a world where everything he thought he knew seemed to be unraveling around him. And yet, in the midst of it all, he cries out to God, why are you silent? And I'm convinced that in his example, we find a powerful picture and illustration of what it means to trust God in those moments when he seems silent. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open up with me to the book of Habakkuk. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 uh, through chapter 2, verse 5. We'll read this together. Here's what the prophet writes. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look as tra at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. He brings them all up with a hook. He drags them out of his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand on the watch post and I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and I will answer according to my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on the tablet so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who's big enough for the questions. You're a God who doesn't provide just quick, simple, easy band-aids that dismiss the pain. But you are the God who meets us there in the midst of it. And Lord, we pray today that as we look at your word, that you would lead us and guide us. 
that you would open our hearts and minds and in the midst of it, you would be overwhelmingly glorified. Lord, we pray today that you would deepen our faith, deepen our love for you as we walk in your great love for us. We praise you, O Lord, in your name. Amen? Amen. Well, if you're just joining us this week, we are actually in week two of a sermon series that we're looking at uh, in the book of Habakkuk called Habakkuk, When God Doesn't Make Sense. Last week, Pastor Mark kicked off this series by uh, telling us the story of this prophet Habakkuk who watched as both the Chaldeans and the Babylonians uh, seemed to invade uh, the nation of Israel at the end of the southern kingdom. And in this passage, Habakkuk, in a radical act of faith, confronts some of the deepest questions of the moments when life doesn't make sense. And it becomes a powerful invitation for us to wrestle with the same. In the first section, he really wrestles with God. Do you care? God, do you even matter? And in this second complaint, he kind of extends the argument a little bit farther. And he asks this question, God, why is it that you remain silent? And what is it that we're supposed to do when the world around us seems to be falling apart at the seams and and we don't seem to hear your response? And what I want to point you to is that in this passage, I believe that Habakkuk points us to a key idea, a key principle that is so incredibly important as we walk this journey of faith. And it's this, that in these moments that God seems silent, in these moments when God doesn't make sense, We are invited to tenaciously cling to God's faithfulness and goodness. But what does that look like? You know, as I read these verses this week, I was reminded that even to begin to talk about principles like this, it would be very easy to slip into the dangerous territory of platitudes, you know, where where we apply a kind of Jesus band-aid that dismisses the pain of the moment. And I want to suggest to you, that's not what Habakkuk does here. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But the first thing that I want to say from the outset is that I am convinced that what Habakkuk models for us is that in these moments when God seems silent, Our invitation is to tenaciously cling to God's faithfulness. Uh, Look with me here in verse 12. Some powerful statements that Habakkuk speaks. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. You have established and ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them as a reproof. Can I suggest to you that there are few more powerful statements of faith in the scriptures than this one that Habakkuk makes. Literally, as he's looking around circumstantially, everything seems to be falling apart at the seams. The Chaldeans are invading. It seems as if a people who are less righteous than the nation of Israel are going to be used by God to destroy them. And, and Habakkuk, full of questions, is like, God, what in the world is going on? And yet in these verses, Habakkuk makes three powerful statements, three powerful invitations that are invitations to what we cling to in these moments when God seems silent. The first is that Habakkuk reminds us that God knows what he's doing. He says, are you not from everlasting? In verse 12. It's the recognition that God from before the foundation of the earth, from before the first Adam ever was crafted into being, God You were. 
God, you saw everything that would ever happen in the human story. You know every circumstance in detail in my life. You know the numbers of hair, the number of the hairs on my head. God, you know it all. What an incredible comfort. Nothing surprises God. And in a moment when the world seems to be spinning radically out of control, in the moments that we don't seem to understand, we have the promise and the reminder that he is the one who has been from everlasting. And he knows exactly what he's doing. Here's the second thing that I think becomes an invitation for us to cling to. It's the recognition that God loves his people. Again, looking in verse 12, do you notice what Habakkuk says in response to this idea of who God is? He says, oh Lord, my God, my holy one, powerful. He's saying, God, I know that you are a God of relationship. I know that you are a God who has spoken of your love for your people. I know that you are a God who has spoken of your love for me. And I can tenaciously cling to this reality that you are worthy of my praise because of who you are. And because of who you've said you are to me, you are my God, my Holy One. And then Habakkuk makes this incredible statement. We shall not die. We shall not die. Whatever circumstances are coming our way, that's not going to be the final moment in our story. But rather, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment and a rock, you have established them for reproof. In other words, what he's saying is, God, you're up to something. God, you're up to something. What? I don't have a clue. How this is going to work for good? I have no idea. But the anchored hope is that even in the darkest moments of our story, God is up to something. So what do we do with that? You know, last week, Pastor Mark reminded us that the word Habakkuk in Hebrew literally means to embrace or to wrestle. And oftentimes, uh, in these moments when God seems silent, we will do some of the deepest and most profound wrestling uh, that we'll do in our journey of faith. You know, last week, Pastor Mark talked about uh, the, uh, the danger of falling into this place of platitudes. And, and as I sat with these realities this week, I, I began to just wrestle in my own heart. How do we remember God's faithfulness without it becoming cheap platitudes? I mean, if you know part of our story, and, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, um, in the journey of losing my wife, can I tell you, there were no small amount of stupid things that people said along the way. Um, some examples. Hey, heaven needed another angel. Yeah, and we needed her too. You know, she's in a better place. It sucks for us though. The one that always gets me is the, the person who told my kids, God wanted your mama more. Really? And, and as I wrestle with those platitudes through the years, here's what I'm learning about platitudes. is that religious platitudes become a way to dismiss the discomfort of the pain rather than being something that drives us back to the place of Jesus. 
We offer cheap platitudes because we don't know what to say. We offer cheap platitudes because we want to give an easy answer and resolve the pain of the moment. And can I tell you that that is anything but the invitation that we find in Scripture? In fact, more and more, here's what I'm learning about the difference between cheap platitudes and clinging to tenacious faith. The way that we keep remembering God from becoming platitude is that we let it drive us to Jesus, not away, as we allow conflicting emotions and struggles to fill the same space. And as a kid, I remember being told, you can't get angry at God. Can I tell you Habakkuk stands as the perfect example that that's not true. God is a God who is big enough for the questions and that oftentimes in the deepest moments of pain, the most holy and sacred thing that we can do is to bring the honest question and struggle of the moment into the presence of a God and say, I don't get it. In fact, if you want to know, is not, if, if this is what we're supposed to do, isn't Jesus himself the perfect example of this? Think of Jesus as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, all things are possible for you. God, I know who you are. You want to end this? You can put an end to this right now. But nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want be done. God, I don't get it. I mean, if if you want to know if Jesus struggled in this moment, he's sweating blood for crying out loud. It's, it, it's God, I don't, I don't understand what you're doing and why is it that I don't seem to be able to make sense of all this? But this I know, that your will is better than my own. Your plan is better than my own. And so in an act of tenacious surrender and obedience, Jesus lays down his life before the Father. What Jesus does is he models for us this tenacious commitment to cling to the reality of who God is, to cling to the beautiful promises that he both knows and cares. And can I tell you that when we do that, what it does is not lead us into cheap Jesus band-aids and platitudes, but it gives us a bold confidence to ask the difficult questions even when life doesn't make sense. And can I suggest to you here then a second thing that Habakkuk models for us, and it's that we tenaciously cling to God through bold authenticity. Uh, Skip with me down to verse 13. Uh, There we're told, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Basically, what's going on is Habakkuk is watching as the Chaldeans are coming in, as they are being used by God as a way to discipline the people of Israel. And and, and Habakkuk is asking the question, God, how could you allow this? I mean, are you not a God of purity? Are you not a God of holiness and righteousness? What are you doing? Maybe if I were going to put it at the most basic level, I would say this really is Habakkuk's question. Why? Do you allow an unrighteous people to punish your nation and remain silent about it? I don't get it. I mean, notice the way Habakkuk begins to develop his question. He's like, look, God, I know that you're a God of purity, that you cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at people 
who are traitors. Why do you remain silent? God, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're empowering them. You're empowering the enemy. We're the people that, are, that you're supposed to be blessing. You're supposed to be on our side, and yet you're using them seriously? Or, or maybe this is just random. Maybe you just make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The universe is spinning, and you have simply stepped back and left it to its own devices. Here are the Chaldeans, and they bring up all things like a hook. They brag at their success and their gladness. They make sacrifices to their own net and live in luxury. God, what are you doing? Why? 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 Ever been in that place in your life when you've held that question of why? And the answer doesn't come? And the question echoes like a voice in a cave, only growing louder through the echoes. And the answers don't seem to come. See, here's the thing about Habakkuk. Is Habakkuk's question is rooted in the need to reconcile what he knows about God and what he's experiencing in his circumstance. Maybe if I were going to put this in Ryan's paraphrase, I would say really what Habakkuk is saying is, God, I know everything in my head that I know that I'm supposed to know about you. But I can't make sense of it in my heart. I know what the right answer should be. I can give you the right theological treatise. I know what the word says. But at the end of the day, how do I reconcile that with what I'm experiencing in my circumstance? You know, as I was thinking about that this week, um, I was quickly transported um, to the moment that my wife passed away five years ago. One day in February, uh, we received the word that um, she had stage four cancer. We thought her gallbladder had ruptured. And I remember thinking in that moment, God, how are you going to use good for this? For seven months, we tried treatment after treatment, one after the other failing. And on the day before, the day she passed, I got a call from a dear friend. And this friend told me, Ryan, I was praying for you and Tammy today. And God told me that he's either going to heal her or raise her from the dead. And show everybody in the hospice house just how powerful he really is. Okay, I thought. Okay, we'll see. And so, on that Thursday morning... I'll never forget the moment when the nurse walked in and just said, it's over. And I stood next to her bed. I remember praying, God, you can do this. God, you can raise her from the dead right now. How cool would this be? Oh my word, God, can you imagine? She stands up and that nurse is going to come to know you if she's not a believer already. 
God, let me tell you, it's going to make the papers, God, if you raise her from the dead right now. I know you can do this. You're God. You made her life in the first place. You can do this. For about five minutes, I sat there holding her hand, waiting for maybe some sign of life. And it never came. And what happened next was perhaps no less a miracle because this song just started to erupt within me. In fact, we sung it today. Bless the Lord, O my soul. But I am so pissed at you right now. Oh, my God. Worship your holy name. Sing like never before. Really? How are we going to go on from this point? How are we going to make sense of this moment? How are the boys going to get through this? Oh, my Lord, worship your holy name. And I slumped on the floor. I just began to say, God, I am angry. I am confused. I am lost. And dang it, I don't understand. But you're still God. But you're still God. And you are worthy of praise. Friends, there will come times in each of our lives. That's my story. But for you, I'm sure there are stories of miscarriages, of deaths of loved ones, of loss of dreams, of moments that life doesn't make sense, of moments where it seems as if everything is coming in one direction and all, all you hear is silence in response. Can I suggest to you that in that moment, the call is to both hold the pain of that moment as sacred and to cling tenaciously to the hope that even in the storm, God is still good. And maybe you're here today and you're in the midst of that struggle and it just seems that God is silent. Can I tell you that though you may feel lonely in this storm, you are not alone. He's up to something. It's not meaningless. And it's why then we're invited to tenaciously cling to God's goodness by surrendering the outcome to him. If you go on, uh, you'll notice that in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk uh, does something fascinating. He says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me and I will answer and what I will answer according my complaint. Uh, literally, uh, what Habakkuk is doing here is he knows uh, that he's, he, he's kind of thrown down the gauntlet with God. 
God, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm angry and I demand an answer. And he postures himself in a place where he's willing to say, I'm going to put myself on the watchtower. I'm going to leave myself open before God that he might answer me according to my complaint. What I love about this is here's what Habakkuk doesn't do. He doesn't just hurl things at God and then go running in the other direction. He doesn't just yell, I'm angry with you, God, and then shut himself down. But in the midst of the anger and the pain and the confusion, he maintains a posture of openness. And basically says, as the psalmist did, Lord, you search me, you know me. God, I'm going to come to you with my complaint. I'm going to come to you with my question. But I know that I want to leave my heart and my life open to you. You know, in the moments that life doesn't make sense, are the questions driving you towards Jesus or away from Jesus? Are the questions driving you back into the arms of one who loves and cares and seeks to speak his love and grace to you? Or is it one that's drawing you further and further away? The questions become a way to insulate yourself from the love and the grace that he would offer. The powerful invitation that Habakkuk gives us is this invitation to make ourselves open and bold to maintain ourselves in a posture of hope as we await for the answer of God. And listen to how God answers. He says in verse two, and the Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on the tablets so that he may run who reads it for the vision waits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Uh, The image here is so powerful. We're told that he is supposed uh, to write the vision and to make it plain on tablets. By the way, that image of tablets, does that bring up any imagery for you? It's the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Basically, what God is saying to the prophet is, look, my faithfulness to answer you is as certain as my law that was written on the tablets of stone and placed within the Ark of the Covenant. I will answer you. And the vision awaits for the appointed time. It hastens to the end and it will not lie. If it seems slow, what are we supposed to do? Wait. Wait. It will surely come. It will not delay. When I read this this week, I was like, seriously? I hate waiting. I hate waiting. Because waiting puts me in the place of dependence. Waiting puts me in the place of surrender. Waiting puts me in the place where I have to acknowledge that he is God and I'm not. In fact, he goes on to say this. Behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That last phrase, does that sound familiar? This is a biggie in the New Testament. In fact, you see it repeated again and again and again by the Apostle Paul to describe God's legal declaration of his people as holy and righteous. And add to that the fact that even in the Hebrew, this word for for Um, uh, righteous living by faith, puts the emphasis not on the righteousness of the person, but the fact that this is a righteousness that is granted to the person 
with the response of faith that comes as a result of the righteousness that had been given to them. In the original context here, this wasn't uh, just in, in terms of some eternal significance, in terms of like uh, we are drawn into the kingdom of God as we trust him by faith, but rather uh, this is about the circumstances of everyday life. And what he's saying here is that in the moments that God seems silent, in the moments that life doesn't seem to make sense, the righteous shall live by tenaciously clinging to the hope that God is good, that God is faithful, and that God will fulfill his purposes for us. And can I tell you, it is the same spiritually as well, and it's why the authors of the New Testament took it there. That our hope eternally lie not in our performance. It lie not in the circumstances of this day. It lie not in the outcomes of this life, but it lie in the certainty of the faithfulness of God who has promised us that he who began this good work in us will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You know, if we would talk about faith, perhaps there's few better places to go than the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11. And we love Hebrews 11. You know, it opens up, faith is the, the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things uh, not seen. And we love it because Hebrews 11 is full of these incredible stories. You know, you, you have the stories of like Abraham who, who believed God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Or you have these stories of like Joseph and Samson and Barak. Uh, we, we find the stories of women who received their dead back by resurrection. Uh, we, we hear beautiful stories again and again of people who by faith moved mountains, set armies to flight. And, and we love to celebrate just these beautiful examples of the power that faith can have. But you know, I don't know that I've ever heard much talk about the final verses of that chapter. I want to share those with you. And others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had already provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You know, I think one of the great illusions that we sometimes hear in the church is that if you just have enough faith, you're going to see the outcome that you desire. Hebrews 11 reminds us not that we'll get the outcome that we desire, but that the pain and the difficulty of this life is not meaningless. It's not pointless. But that God is up to something even in the moments that life doesn't make sense. And in those moments, our invitation is simply to say, God, I don't get it, but I trust you. And I surrender this outcome to you, knowing in your way and in your time, you'll set all things right. You mean I got to wait for it? Yeah. 
You know, ironically, Habakkuk would never see the salvation of his people in his lifetime, this side of eternity. But God, in his way, in his time, brought his promise to completion. You know, as I sat in these words this week, um, I was captured by this final verse that we find in verses, in verse eight. I'm sorry, uh, verse five. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as white as Sheol like death that never has enough. He gathers himself for all nations and collects as his own all peoples. I thought, man, what an interesting way to close this section. What's he saying there? I think what he's doing is he's warning us. Don't numb out. Wine's a traitor. In the moments when life doesn't seem to make sense, the temptation is to turn to many different things in order to numb out from the question. That might be alcohol. That might be dead religion. That might be bitterness. That might be just throwing your hands up in the air and running in the other direction and saying, what's the point? The invitation that Habakkuk gives us is to wrestle and to wrestle well. Even in the moments that life doesn't make sense. And I wonder today, where is God inviting you to tenaciously cling to his goodness in the places where life doesn't make sense? You know, more and more, I've I've been doing some side reading about uh, just the way in which we use our bodies as an expression in worship. And the power of the body to speak to uh, our souls in different ways and dimensions. And so I'm gonna gonna invite you as we sing uh, this last song here in a few moments to use your body as an instrument of worship. And I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back back up here. And I'm gonna walk you through that a little bit. Um, Maybe you're here today and you would say, in the midst of this struggle and this challenge, I need to stand again in the reminder that God's good. The circumstances, the doubts, the questions has, have obscured that reality. And today, anchoring my life in what he has said in his word, I, I need to stand on the promises that he's good, that he sees, and that he's faithful. So we sing this song, I want to invite you to use your body and stand as an act and a posture of prayer and surrender in that reminder that he's good. Maybe you're here today and you would recognize God's in control, but you don't get it, so you've been trying to take things back into your own hands. Rather than surrendering the outcome to him, you've been trying to figure it out in your own power, weary and exhausted. The silence only seems to echo and deepen your sense of confusion. And today, God is inviting you to surrender that to him. If that's you, I just want to invite you to stay seated. As an act of God, you got this. You got this. I can rest 
because you're good and faithful. You know, friends, as I, as I think back to that hospital room, I am convinced that there are fewer sanctuaries that have been more sacred in my journey of faith than those four walls. The most adorned cathedral in Europe will never compare to the work of what God did in that moment in my heart. It is there in the questions that we find the sacred ground and the holy space of transformation and grace and mercy. And so today, with our questions, with our doubts, with our fears, may we go into the presence of a God who sees, a God who knows, and a God who cares in the confidence that he's got it. He's got it. Let's pray. Great Father, who's big enough for the questions. Precious Son, who gave his blood to draw us close. And Holy Spirit, who strengthens us in the journey. How we pray today that you would draw near. God, in the places that it just seems that you're silent, would you either speak clearly that we would hear your voice or would you grant us the faith to trust? Would you grant us the faith to trust that you're up to something? And by your mercy and love, may we find a deeper freedom to be your people. Oh, Jesus, we love you so much. Lord, we know that it pales in comparison to the deep love you have for us. You are worthy, you are good, and you are holy, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. Let's sing together.